take your Bibles, turn along with me to Romans chapter 2 this morning. Romans 2. I know many of you are excited about the fact that tonight there is a major cultural event that will be watched by millions. Yes, of course, I'm talking about the Puppy Bowl (laughs) on Animal Planet. You won't want to miss it. So exciting. And I'm told that after the Puppy Bowl, there'll be a football game. Now, many people, perhaps some of you, will watch the Super Bowl tonight just for the commercials. And there's usually some pretty good ones. I sympathize with trying to get your message across in a short period of time. I try to do it in 45 minutes. They have 30 seconds. That's difficult to pull off. And the stakes are high given how much it costs to buy a 30-second ad. Well, our text this morning reminds me of another commercial from many years ago. It was both a slogan and a series of commercials for American Express back in the late 80s and early 90s. And the slogan was, membership has its privileges. Some of you are familiar with that ad campaign. Membership has its privileges. And the impression you were left with, both from the slogan and from those commercials, was that if you have the American Express card, you will get better service wherever you go. You'll get a better table at a restaurant. You'll get a better room at a hotel. You'll get better experiences on your vacation and so forth. Why? Because membership has its privileges. Well, that is what the Jews of Paul's day thought about themselves. Membership has its privileges. They viewed themselves as members of God's people, members of the people of God, and membership had its privileges, including being right with God simply by nature of their ethnic heritage and their nationality, being Jews. They thought being a Jew equals being right with God. Well, this morning we're going to see that while membership in the Jewish race does have certain privileges, it doesn't mean that their sins were all pardoned just because they were Jewish. We're going to see that religious and spiritual privilege does not equal pardon from sin. Now, we are right in the middle of this section of Romans where Paul is laying out the guilt of our sin. He does that in chapters One, two, and three. And we're right in the middle of that. That's just before he moves on to the grace of God in salvation in chapters 4 through 11. And then concludes the book with our response of gratitude in chapters 12 through 16. But for now, we're in the middle of this guilt section where we're taking a long, hard look at our own guilt before God because of our own sin. And as we'll see this morning, even though we may have experienced many spiritual privileges, these privileges do not themselves equal pardon for sin. 
So join with me as I read Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29 this morning. Romans 2, 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we pray that you would help us, aid us, guide us by your Spirit into your Word. We know it's true. Sometimes we struggle to understand it, to understand its meaning, to understand rightly its implications for us, and so we are asking for your help today to do just that. Lord, do so that we might better understand you, better understand your gospel. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Living in the day and age in which we do, we are blessed with many spiritual privileges. We live in a country that, by and large, still values religious freedom. Though that is under attack in many corners, nevertheless, we still live in such a nation that regards and values and defends religious freedom. That's a great spiritual privilege. We have God's Word in abundance, all of us probably have a copy of God's Word. If you don't, we'll help you get one. But most of us have many copies, multiple copies, on our shelves at home, on the table at home, on our desk at home. You have copies of God's Word, probably multiple copies on your phone and your devices. You can listen to God's Word read to you in your car or while you work out. We have God's word in abundance. What a great spiritual privilege. In most towns across this country, there seem to be a church on every corner. 
while none, all of them are created equal, and some are better than others, nevertheless, it's a great spiritual privilege that we have access to the house of God, to the people of God in such abundance. Many of us grew up in Christian homes. That too is a great spiritual privilege. Some of us are third, fourth, fifth generation. Christianity goes back in our families a long, long way. What a great spiritual heritage. What a great spiritual privilege. We have Christian friends. We've been part of great Bible teaching churches. We have access to all kinds of great Bible teaching. These are all great spiritual privileges. And yet, these privileges in and of themselves do not equal pardon from sin. Pardon of guilt. We need to be reminded that spiritual privilege does not equal pardon. And so this morning we're going to see from our text two examples of how spiritual privilege does not equal pardon from guilt. Two examples of how spiritual privilege does not equal pardon from guilt. The first one we see in verses 17 through 24. And that is this. The example that the spiritual privilege of having the law does not equal pardon from the guilt of breaking God's law. Paul now makes explicit in these verses what has been implicit throughout chapter 2. And that is that he is addressing the Jewish people. And he addresses them through an imaginary opponent who is himself a Jew. He says, if you bear the name Jew. Now, if you'll recall, Paul is in the middle of a diatribe, which, if you will remember, is a literary device or, or an oratory device, oratorical device, in which the author or speaker has an imaginary dialogue with an imaginary opponent. And so here, Paul identifies his imaginary opponent as a Jew. The term Jew originally referred to a person who was from the region occupied by descendants of the tribe of Judah and was applied later more generally to all the people of Israel after the exile since when they returned to the land, they returned to that area of Judah and the return area was about the size of the land of Judah. And so by Paul's day, it was common to refer to any Israelite as a Jew, Judah, Jew. For Paul, there were Jews, and then there was everyone else. And that was the common understanding of the day. In fact, look back at Romans 1.16. He makes a distinction between the Jews and everyone else. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or to the Gentile, or to everyone else. So there are Jews and there's everyone else. Now the Jews took pride in their history and their identity. They were God's chosen people after all. Out of all the nations of the earth, God had chosen to specially bless them and use them as his tool, as a light of truth and righteousness among the nations to bring salvation to the world through the Jewish people. Not only do they bear the name Jew, but Paul says that they also rely upon the law and they boast in God. 
Now, what does it mean to rely on the law? Well, it means to rest in it. To have a sense of well-being because you have it, because you possess it. God had given his law, the law of Moses, to the Israelites at Sinai. They had been entrusted with God's special revelation, consisting initially of the Ten Commandments, of course, and then encompassing all the 613 or so commandments that have been given in the law, in the books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And the Jews relied upon the law in the sense that they believed that merely having the law was sufficient to make them acceptable to God, to make them right with God. That God would treat them differently, that God would treat them specially because they were in possession of His revelation, His law. They were trusting in the law to save them. Possession of the law. The Jews also boasted in God. Now, there's nothing wrong with boasting in God in the right sense. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. It was truly a privilege to belong to the nation of Israel and to be called a Jew, to be the covenant people of God, to have had special history involving God's special blessing and care and deliverance. And to have the law of God imparted to you as a people. And yet as great as these privileges are, they do not result automatically in pardon for sin. That is Paul's point here. Paul goes on to describe further privileges in verse 18. He describes them from the perspective of the Jew. The Jew knew God's will because they had God's law. The Jew was able to approve the things that are essential, the things that are important, being instructed out of the law. Again, all of this flows from having the law. It gave them insight. It gave them a worldview. It gave them a way of seeing things and interpreting things. It was a great spiritual privilege. But their possession of the law also gave them an unhealthy spiritual self-confidence and spiritual self-righteousness. They were trusting not in the law giver, but in the law itself. Now look at verse 19. They were confident that they were a guide to the blind and a light to those who were in darkness. The Jews had the light of God's law to be sure they could See, while the nations of the world were in the darkness of blindness. Indeed, this was God's intention for them as a nation and as a people. In Isaiah 49, 6, God says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
They were supposed to shine the light of God's word on the nations around them and enlighten them to the truth of God's word. But by and large, they simply held the light under a bushel, as it were, kept the light to themselves. By and large, the Jewish people rested in this as a status that gave them special consideration before God. They possessed the law. So in their minds, that made them not guilty of sin, not guilty of breaking the law. They would not be held accountable by God for doing so because God loved them so much he gave them his law. So they were good. The list of privileges continues in verse 20. You're a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. And that's certainly true, right? The, the law is the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. And while this was true, yet this wealth of privilege did not translate into spiritual humility and further dependence upon the Lord which is what it was intended to do. Instead, it resulted in spiritual pride and a sense of entitlement. They were a special people with special privileges and therefore they deserved special consideration when it comes to God's judgment. They were like the Jews of Micah's day who although they were involved in all kinds of sin and unrighteousness, though they thought that their special privilege would result in special divine treatment. Listen to what Micah 3.11 says. Speaking of Israel, her leaders pronounced judgment for a bribe. So they were skewing their judgments in order to get a little money under the table. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. You want to know the future? I'll tell you your future if you give me a little... A little green. And then it goes on to say this. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. We're God's chosen. We're God's special people regardless of how we live. You see, the reality is despite the Jews' many special privileges as God's chosen people, despite the fact that they had the law of God, nevertheless, they had transgressed this law in many, many ways. But their spiritual pride prevented them from seeing it and acknowledging their own guilt. And the following verses make it clear. Look at verse 21. You who teach another, do you teach yourself? Hey, Mr. Teacher Man, how about teaching yourself a little bit? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Take a little of your own medicine. You who teach another, do you teach yourself? Paul is introducing here a series of accusation in which he lays out their hypocrisy, Jewish hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another. Taking pride in one action, all the while being guilty of that very same thing. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? Do you practice what you preach? 
Verse 22, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now that may seem out of place. Where did that come from? What's this robbing temples all about? Pagan temples often had many valuable silver, gold, and copper pieces. And the temptation for some was to preach against idolatry while not blinking an eye at stealing a valuable pagan idol for personal gain, something that was clearly forbidden in the law. Those things were under a ban. They were not to steal an idol for personal gain. Now all of these accusations come down to the summary in verse 23. You who boast in the law, you who take pride in the law, you who lean upon the law as the justification of your soul. You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? The answer to this question is an obvious and resounding, yes, you do dishonor God by boasting in the law and then breaking the law and thinking that there would be no consequence for that. Yes, they are dishonoring God in their actions that violated God's law. Despite their boasting in the privilege of possessing God's law, Paul has called them out here for violating the clear commandments of God relating to adultery, idolatry, and theft. Three out of the Ten Commandments. They think that because they possessed the law that somehow that meant that they had fulfilled the law. Or that they were above the law. There's a saying in property law that possession is nine-tenths of the law. Well, when it comes to the law of God, possession is zero-tenths of the law. It's great to possess the law. It's great to have it. Better to have it than not have it. But possessing it simply makes you culpable. Simply makes you guilty for failing to conform to the things that are clearly spelled out in the law. Having the law is no solution. Possessing the law is not pardon. In fact, it only results in greater guilt. Romans 2.13, I'll take you back there. We talked about that last Sunday. That was a pretty important message. If you happen to miss that one, Go back and listen to it. I encourage you to. Makes a strong distinction between law and gospel. And you can easily get tripped up walking through that passage. So I encourage you, if you haven't already heard it, go back and listen to it. Romans 2.13, look with me there what Paul says. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now remember, as we looked at that last week, Paul is laying down the law here. He's not laying out the gospel. This is law, not gospel. Romans 2.13 is law, not gospel. Paul is talking about the divine standard of judgment, not the path of salvation. This isn't how someone gets saved. We could never get saved by law keeping because we could never keep the law. But it's through the law that we will be judged. It's according to our works that God will judge. according to his grace that he will save. So the standard of God's judgment, as made clear in Romans 2.13, is perfect personal 
perpetual obedience to the law. And the Jews, despite their many spiritual privileges, had all fallen short of God's law. They had all fallen short of that personal, perpetual, perfect obedience to the law. And the result of this is that they had dishonored God. In verse 24, Paul quotes from Isaiah 52, 5. Possibly also Ezekiel 36, 20 through 22. Same ideas are presented in both passages. Their lives did not match their great spiritual privilege. And the result was that they had a bad reputation and God's name was blasphemed among the nations. Exactly opposite of what God intended for his chosen people to be a light to the nations. Despite their great privilege of having the law because they had failed to meet the divine standard of perfect obedience to this law, they too would be condemned. Just like the Gentiles just like the nations. They trusted in their privilege of possessing the law of God and not in the God who gave them this law. The law was given to them to bring them to brokenness, to bring them to see their need, to bring them to repentance, repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. So the first example of spiritual privilege that does not equal pardon from the guilt of sin is the spiritual privilege of having God's law or God's word. Let's look now at the second privilege that does not equal pardon. The spiritual privilege of outward identification with the people of God does not equal pardon from the guilt of sin and breaking God's law. Verses 25 through 29. Beginning in verse 25 through the end of the chapter, Paul discusses the issue of circumcision and its spiritual significance or insignificance, as the case may be. Circumcision, of course, is the removal of the male foreskin. It was the sign of the covenant. It was part of what distinguished the Jewish people from all the other peoples of the earth. There were the Jews and there were the Gentiles. There were the circumcised and there were the uncircumcised. It was a quintessential part of what it meant to be a Jewish male. And it was a quintessential part of Jewish cultural identity in general. Circumcision was an external physical identification with the people of God. Now look with me at verse 25. He says, for indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Circumcision has value in that it is a command of God. It is a command of the law of Moses. And as we saw last week, the standard of God's judgment is the law. The only way to be justified by the law is by personally, perfectly, perpetually obeying the law, and that would include circumcision for the Jew. But Paul says if you transgress the law in other points, your circumcision will become uncircumcision. Failure to keep the law in one part is failure to keep the law at all parts. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. 
If you haven't kept the law at all points, you might as well be uncircumcised. And for the Jew, this is mind-blowing. Paul is talking about here. Circumcision was a great privilege in that it identified a person with the people of God and all the privileges that are to be found therein. Yet despite these privileges, circumcision did not give a person pardon from the wrath of God. It never did. It never brought salvation. It never brought justification. It never made you right with God. And Paul here is correcting the assumption, the wrong assumption, that many Jews had. Judaism largely believed that a circumcised person would never face hell. As long as you were circumcised, you were good. In fact, later Judaism, a little after Paul's time, stated this, quote, No person who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna, Gehenna being the place of divine judgment. No person who is circumcised will go down to Gehenna. In other words, if you're, if you're a circumcised person, you're a Jew and you're circumcised, you're fine. You will not face God's judgment simply based on this outward circumcision. Then in verse 26 and 27, Paul reverses the scenario. He swaps it around using a Gentile instead of a Jew. Look at verse 26. So if the uncircumcised man, the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? If he kept the law at all other points, would not he be regarded as among the people of God? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? So, follow Paul's thinking here. If an uncircumcised Gentile personally, perfectly, and perpetually follows the law of God as it's been revealed to him and written upon his heart, the law of conscience, then his uncircumcision will be regarded by God as circumcision. Paul is here posing a similar hypothetical like he did back in chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law that will be justified. Again, Paul's not pointing out the way of salvation here. He's saying this is the standard of judgment. This is how God will judge people according to the law. And the standard is perfect, perpetual obedience to the law as revealed to you. The only way to escape the judgment of God by law-keeping is through personal, perfect, perpetual performance of the law. Now we know that no such person exists outside the Lord Jesus himself. But under the same hypothetical, if a Gentile were to keep the law of conscience perfectly, then his status as uncircumcised, that is outside the people of God, would be changed by God to circumcised, indicating that he is inside the people of God. Paul is teasing out here a different understanding of the significance of circumcision and what it was actually always intended to signify. An external physical sign and symbol of an internal spiritual heart reality. Something which the Lord intended from the very beginning. Listen to what Moses says after the people had sinned by making a 
golden calf and worshiping it. You remember that? Moses is up on Sinai getting the word of God, getting the law of God, the Ten Commandments from God. And he comes down and he hears this rejoicing and this celebrating and this partying going on. It turns out his brother Aaron has crafted a, a, an idol, a golden calf. He, he gathered gold from the people and he threw it in the fire and he says, out pop this calf. And the people worshipped it and they were partying and doing all kinds of wicked things. But listen to what Moses says as he responds to the people in their sin. Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 17. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is to this day. Verse 16. So circumcise your heart. Literally it says, so circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and the mighty and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Listen, this is the Lord you're dealing with, so you better circumcise your heart. You better put your heart in order. Moses is calling them to do the difficult heart work of repentance. Of, of humbling oneself before a holy God. Of not standing in self-righteousness and self-defense. But throwing yourself upon the mercy of God. Repenting and confessing your sins and trusting in the only way of salvation that He has provided. The way of His Son. This spiritual understanding of circumcision is made clearer by what Paul says in verses 28 and 29. Look there with me. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, now what Paul is not doing is seeking here to blur forever all distinction between Jew and Gentile. He's already made those distinctions, right? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's done it three times so far in this short letter, making such distinctions. He's going to do it a lot more as we get in to chapters 9 through 11. So what does he mean he is not a Jew who is one outwardly? Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. It's not of the letter. It's not merely external. It's not of the flesh. It's not merely outward that matters. But it is of the heart and it is by the Spirit. Paul is saying there is more to being the people of God than merely externally conforming to some outward standard or sign or symbol or rite. Whether it's circumcision or anything else. Becoming a part of the true people of God is an internal heart work that is wrought by the Spirit of God and it comes at the time of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, the point of all this is that circumcision neither guarantees outward circumcision, external circumcision, neither guarantees the Jew's salvation, nor does the lack of such circumcision keep a Gentile from being saved. Because salvation is ultimately not about whether you're circumcised or not. That's his point. As Paul will say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision is, spiritually speaking, nothing, Paul says. It doesn't matter in terms of justification or even sanctification for that matter. So with all that in mind, let me make just an application or two of these principles for us this morning. All right? These examples. We know from this passage that the Jews were resting on the law. They were trusting in the law. Possession of the law. Having the law in their possession. Thinking that merely having the law was enough to make them right with God. When in fact it is the doers of the law, not hearers only, who will meet God's divine standards of judgment. They were also resting on their circumcision to make them right with God, thinking that some outward sign and symbol was enough to make them a part of the people of God. And so it's easy for us to look back and say, oh, how foolish. How silly is that? How could merely possessing the law make you right with God? How could merely going through some outward physical surgery make you right with God? That's ridiculous. And yet, how many times in our own day do people rely on similar things to make them right with God. Say, for instance, being from the right country, being an American. Surely I was born in in this country. It's a Christian nation. I'll, I'll, I'll be good when it comes to Judgment Day. Friends, let me tell you, they're not checking passports at the gate of heaven. That's not the concern. Where you're from matters not. Who you are trusting in for salvation is what matters. What are some other things that, what are some other privileges that people trust in? Being part of the correct political party. Being born into a Christian home. Now don't get me wrong, that's a great blessing. It's a great privilege, but merely being born into a Christian home will not get you into heaven. There are no spiritual grandchildren in heaven. Every person, every individual of every generation has to come face to face with the fact of their own guilt, their own sin, and that they will answer to God for that and turn from that sin and trust in God's provision of His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the full penalty of their guilt and of their sin and provide the full righteousness of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Something that's given as a gift and that is received by faith. What are other things people trust in? Privileges. Being part of a local church. 
maybe a great church, maybe the best church. That won't help you come judgment day on its own. It'll only make you more culpable. You heard, you heard the gospel. You should have known better than to trust in yourself and your mere attendance at a church. Well, I have a Bible. Well, the Jews had the law. That didn't help them. It didn't make them justified before God. How about being baptized? Baptism never saved anyone. Never secured the salvation of a single soul. It's an outward sign. How about taking communion? Some churches teach that that's part of being saved is that you'll take communion and that'll contribute to your salvation. Not in the least. Again, an outward sign, an outward symbol pointing to something greater than itself, pointing to the substance which is Christ. The bread and the cup are but a shadow a symbol and a sign of he who is the substance. Friends, none of these things is sufficient to make you right with God. None of them. None of them individually, nor if you did them all and rolled them all together, they would still fail to make you right with God. You see, works, good deeds, our efforts, our spiritual privileges can never make us right with God. They will always, always, always leave us falling far short of God's righteous standard, which is personal, perfect, perpetual performance of His law. And we simply can't do it. We could never perfectly fulfill God's law for a single day, let alone for the totality of our lives. So where do we go? To whom should we look for deliverance from our guilt? Not in the mirror. We should look to Jesus. For only Jesus fulfilled the law's just demands. Only Jesus obeyed both the outward letter of the law while also obeying the law sincerely and fully from the heart. Jesus did this throughout his life so that he could serve as a sinless substitute for you and for me. And now God graciously offers forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all who will turn from their sin, who will turn from their self-righteousness, who will turn from trusting in their spiritual privileges and turn from trusting in all else to save them turning to Jesus and trusting in Him alone and His finished work on the cross and His resurrection on the third day. This is the gospel. It is the good news. We need that good news because the law only leads us to the conclusion that we can't do it on our own. But there is one who did it all. There is one who declared from the cross It is finished, paid in full. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus, who fulfilled all the law's demands, always did what was pleasing to the Father, fulfilled all righteousness, 
And he did so on our behalf. So that he might go to the cross as a sinless substitute. Take upon himself our sin and guilt. And bearing that sin and guilt, paying the due penalty that our sin and guilt deserved. Paying it in full. Thank you, Jesus. But not only that. Not only, Jesus, do you take our sin, but you give us your righteousness. That righteous life that we could never live. That fulfillment of the law that we could never do. You have done and have conferred upon us. And it's been credited to us by faith in Jesus. What good news. Lord Jesus, be honored and glorified and exalted as we remember you and your sacrifice that made all of this possible. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.